Due to the graphic nature of this episode, listener discretion is advised. It contains discussion of rape, murder of children, torture, violence, and genocide that some listeners may find disturbing. Extreme caution is advised for listeners under 13. In December 1982, U.S. President Ronald Reagan flew to Central America to meet with a series of Latin American leaders. At that time, their nations were facing conflicts ranging from small-scale violence to outright civil wars. The United States government had played a major role in nearly every one of these conflicts. It either orchestrated coups against leaders it deemed a threat to U.S. interests, or propped up military tyrants. Like Guatemalan leader Efrain Rios Montt. When he met Reagan, he urged the president to resume sending him money and arms to fight the communists. Montt even made light of the situation, joking about his scorched earth efforts to eradicate the Red Menace. After laughing about the massacres that had already killed thousands of indigenous Maya, Reagan assured Montt that the United States would, quote, do all it could to support his progressive efforts. All Reagan asked was for Mont to assure him the military would be more strict with its troops. Of course, Mont had no intention of doing that, and Reagan didn't really care. Mont was staunchly anti-communist. That's all that mattered. Reagan eventually told the press that Efrain Rios Mont was, quote, a man of great personal integrity. He also insisted that allegations of a Mont-led Guatemalan genocide were nothing more than a, quote, bum rap. This colloquialism legitimized Mont in the eyes of many Americans. Worse yet, it gave the dictator free reign to commit bloody atrocities not seen since the Spanish conquistadors first set foot on the shores of Guatemala, just over 450 years earlier. Welcome to Dictators, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm Richard. And I'm Kate. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. This season, we're looking at post-World War II Central American and Caribbean dictators Rafael Trujillo of the Dominican Republic, Efrain Rios Montt of Guatemala, and Anastasio Somoza de Baile of Nicaragua. Last week, we looked at Mont's rise. We discussed how a stolen election and a religious conversion ultimately led him to seize power, all during the height of a decades-long civil war. This week, we'll put a human face to the atrocities Mont and his regime committed and explore how he used Christianity to justify it. And we'll examine how, despite the violence, he managed to remain a vital force in Guatemalan politics years after his reign. Coming up, we'll head to war-torn Guatemala. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. 
This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. After taking control of Guatemala in a bloodless coup on March 23, 1982, 55-year-old General Efrain Rios Montt immediately set about distinguishing himself from his long line of predecessors. For the past two decades, a dizzying series of men had seized the country through violent coups. It was a vicious, never-ending cycle, and Montt wanted to end that. His plan to do so was simple. First, the born-again Christian leader laid out a biblically-inspired agenda focusing on humility, respect for authority, namely God and himself, and a devotion to family values. Mont believed that if Guatemalans would only embrace these traditional solutions, the country's many ills would heal, including its bloody and devastating civil war. But with respect to that very civil war, Mont was actually more reactionary and violent than most of his predecessors. In fact, his mission, as he saw it, was to end the war entirely. Not through diplomacy or negotiation, but by killing, capturing, or arresting every last rebel, guerrilla, or sympathizer. As we discussed last episode, upon taking power, Mont offered amnesty to all rebels. However, there was a caveat. They had only a month to accept it. And in the end, it was estimated that only around 250 people accepted the olive branch. Once the amnesty campaign ended, Mont made it clear that those rebels who hadn't taken up his offer would be dealt with swiftly and severely. So on June 30th, he announced the next phase of his war against the insurgents, a program known as Fusiles y Frijoles, or Rifles and Beans. Fusiles y Frijoles was something of a catch-all. It was designed to not only root out anti-government insurgents, but also to directly address another so-called ill plaguing the country, the lack of a national identity. Mont believed that one of the main reasons for this lack of identity was the indigenous Mayas. Guatemala boasted an enormous indigenous Maya population. Similar to the indigenous peoples in the U.S., the Maya are broken up into 21 separate nations with as many as two dozen individual languages between them. Mont's goal was to create a single Guatemalan identity. He implored his citizens, stating, quote, we are simply a nation without identity, we don't know our roots. It is a very serious problem. Of course, 
the ethnic Maya were Guatemala's roots. They had occupied the country long before the Spanish conquistadors. But there was another false promise buried in Mont's preaching, the idea of unity. He had no real desire to integrate the Maya into his Guatemala. Instead, he chose to characterize the indigenous population as enemies of the state, and he used them as scapegoats for the nation's problems, including the Civil War. Mont's choice to scapegoat the indigenous peoples was not unlike Hitler's decision to scapegoat Jews or Talat Pasha's attack on Armenians. Like these other minority groups, the Maya had been oppressed for centuries. They were already largely reviled by upper-class Guatemalans, most of whom were of Spanish descent. Furthermore, Mont argued that since the Maya toiled as laborers, they were more likely to embrace the rhetoric of Guatemala's other enemies, leftist and anti-government guerrillas. After all, those rebels often advocated for fair wages and treatment of workers. Inspired by their comrades in Cuba and Vietnam, anti-authoritarian Marxist guerrillas were ubiquitous in Latin America starting in the early 1960s. These groups existed largely as a response to the authoritarian military governments throughout the region, a number of which were backed by the U.S. However, they were far from united amongst themselves and were often poorly organized. Which contributed to the fact that many Guatemalan Maya weren't interested in allying with them. Not only that, though, the Guatemalan Maya didn't need another target on their back. And many of them correctly feared that any association with known guerrillas would inspire retribution from the government. Even so, the Guatemalan government wasn't taking any chances. In order to prevent the Maya from falling victim to the so-called rhetoric and propaganda of the rebels, Mont set out to essentially deprogram them. First, by forcibly moving them from their villages into government-operated hamlets. Then, by re-educating them in an effort to transform them into loyal subjects. Re-education villages allowed the Mont regime to essentially jail and monitor large groups of Maya under the pretext of transforming them into modern, productive citizens. Within the villages, the Maya were forced to learn and speak Spanish engage in ideological chats with their government-approved teachers, and of course do away with nearly every vestige of their heritage and tradition. This concerted effort to erase Maya heritage was particularly heinous, considering that Mont would honor Maya culture while in public. For instance, Mont made a big show of attending national celebrations that superficially honored indigenous cultures. He even appointed 10 Maya representatives to mid-level government positions, all to demonstrate that they could, in fact, become productive Guatemalans. But Mont never actually believed that a significant number of Maya would be re-educated or transformed into model Guatemalans. Rather, his policies were simply a way of oppressing, surveilling, and outright murdering the Maya. In fact, Mont's Fusiles y Frijoles campaign quickly became an orgy of torture and violence. Saying the quiet part out loud, one military officer remarked, 
If you are with us, we'll feed you. If you are against us, we'll kill you. And in most cases, the military decided that all Maya they came across were against them, whether or not it was actually true. Thanks to the Fusiles y Frijoles campaign, the military actually made more progress against the guerrillas during Mont's first months in office than it had during the entire civil war up to that point. For the first time in years, the guerrillas seemed poised for defeat. And with the campaign driven into rural areas, even those who were somewhat sympathetic to the rebel cause were grateful for a lull in urban violence especially those in the middle and upper classes. In fact, Mont's overwhelming success against the guerrillas made many within the public view him as a sort of protector. He had finally brought a much-needed degree of law and order to Guatemala. At the same time, Mont was seen by many as incorruptible. He was known to be against bribery and he legitimately attempted to end the decades-old system of graft and kickbacks that existed with the military and government officials. Most importantly, he was held up as the nation's moral compass, a pious, sincere, religiously devout man on a mission. Riding the wave of this adulation, Mont kicked Fusilis y Frijoles up by several violent notches. He realized the only way to wipe out the guerrillas once and for all was to take a scorched earth approach. So he gave his commanders carte blanche to do as they saw fit to finish off his enemies. However, Mont did have one rule. Mont told his officers that civilians and their properties were to be respected. Innocent civilians would not be killed. However, if such unfortunate acts did take place, he did not want to read about them in the newspaper. But while Mont paid lip service to protecting civilians, with Fusilis y Frijoles ramping up into scorched earth territory, it was inevitable. That objective fell completely by the wayside. Everyone, it appeared, was fair game. Coming up, Efrain Rios Mont's soldiers leave a trail of death and destruction as they make their way through the Guatemalan countryside. The most urgent mysteries in the world are missing persons cases. The stakes are too high not to pursue every plausible possibility, and some implausible ones too. I'm Sarah Turney, host of the new podcast, Disappearances. In 2020, after spending years searching for the truth, I use social media to help bring justice to my sister Alyssa's nearly two decades long disappearance. Now, every Thursday on Spotify, I'm exploring the many reasons people disappear and the impact their absences can have on those left behind. From child abductions and mystifying murders to those who took drastic measures to start over, each episode of Disappearances journeys through a different high-profile missing persons case, ripped from the headlines and ripe for explanation. Because no one just vanishes into thin air. The answers are out there, waiting to be found. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast Disappearances. Hear a new episode every Thursday, free and only on Spotify. 
This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Now back to the story. During his first 100 days in office, Efrain Rios Montt seemed like a breath of fresh air compared to the tyrants who preceded him, at least to those Guatemalans in the middle and upper classes. He had pledged to be more diplomatic, sympathetic, and less violent, to truly lead in the image of God. But beneath the surface, Montt was just as pernicious and reactionary as his predecessors, especially when it came to defeating the various anti-government guerrillas and the indigenous Maya. At the end of June 1982, a military patrol entered the Maya village of San Francisco Nenton, believing that at least a significant portion of the villagers were sympathetic to the guerrilla fighters in the area. Of course, there's no way of knowing if their intelligence was correct. But that wasn't the point. The point of the mission was to scare the residents of the village and villages just like it into pledging their loyalty to the government. The soldiers warned the people to, quote, be careful, do not involve yourselves with the guerrillas or you are going to die for their crimes. After the threat, the soldiers distributed candy and canned sardines to the terrified villagers, apparently a gesture of goodwill. About three weeks later, on July 17th, nearly 600 soldiers returned to San Francisco Nenton. Confused, the villagers attempted to assure the soldiers that they did in fact support the government, not the guerrillas. A short time later, three helicopter gunships began hovering over the village, at which time a military commander proclaimed, we're going to have a fiesta. We're going to give you some good food and nothing is going to happen. But this was a lie. The soldiers proceeded to take the women and children and lock them in the chapel. The men were then robbed of their money and any jewelry they happened to be wearing and subsequently imprisoned in the village courthouse. Around 1 p.m., the women were taken from the chapel without their children. The soldiers forced them into various houses where they were raped. Their screams could be heard in the courthouse, where the men were powerless to help. After raping the women, the soldiers shot or burned them to death, the fires eventually spreading across the houses. With the women dead, the soldiers returned to the chapel for the children. According to one survivor, they brought out the last child, and he was a little one, maybe two or three years old, and stabbed him and cut out his innards. He was screaming because he wasn't dead. Right there, the soldier grabbed a thick, hard stick and bashed his head. Reflecting further on the incident, the same survivor suggested, it's possible they killed the children like that so as not to waste their munitions, or perhaps as a game for the soldiers. After murdering the children, the soldiers turned to the men starting with the village elders, 
Another survivor recalled that slitting their throats made the soldiers laugh. The poor old men, they were crying and suffering. Finally, the soldiers massacred the younger men. Some were brought outside, laid flat on their bellies, and shot in the back of the head. Others were simply shot inside the courthouse. It's been estimated that between 300 and 350 people died in the San Francisco Nanton massacre. However, three lucky men somehow escaped by lying among the corpses and playing dead. One was only able to escape when the soldiers took a break to listen to music and eat. He managed to jump out of the window just before the soldiers set fire to the building. That particular survivor lost 30 members of his family, including his wife, his eight children, brothers, and grandchildren. Eventually, from the safety of a refugee camp in Mexico, he and the two other survivors would testify to the destruction, horror, and carnage they witnessed. Numerous massacres just like this one took place under Mont. As a result, many rural Maya villagers chose to flee the country rather than wait for the soldiers to come for them. When the military discovered the abandoned villages, they were burned to the ground. It was an insidious move meant to ensure the villagers could never rebuild or return to the life they once had. According to historian Virginia Garrard Burnett, this is what is meant by the policy of scorched earth, the obliteration not only of homes and possessions, but the very landscape of place and belonging. Not all of the Maya chose to escape, however. In fact, many chose to join the very military that was terrorizing them. Historian Mario Alfredo Merida Gonzalez estimates that 90% of Mont's lower-level soldiers were of Maya origin. When considering this staggering figure, it's important to remember that for many Maya living in abject poverty with no chance of social mobility, the army provided a sense of belonging, not to mention food and shelter. As someone who had used the army for his own social mobility, Mont understood this better than anybody. For the first times in their lives, Maya men felt respected instead of suppressed. As such, these indigenous recruits were easily indoctrinated with military propaganda. Eventually, they became ruthless murderers of other Maya. Not all of the Maya military recruits were acting of their own volition, however. Many were forced to join the military, often as civil patrollers within their own villages. Their job was to root out guerrillas or anti-government sympathizers. Efrain Rios Mont created this role as a means to not only control the Maya population, but to turn them against one another. Some took to the job with alacrity and relished their new roles of authority. Others, meanwhile, gritted their teeth and did as they were told. Regardless, by the end of March 1983, there were nearly 700,000 civil patrollers, about 10% of the country's total population. The Mont regime appeared to be getting more and more control over Guatemala's turmoil. Forced service and the Fusiles y Frijoles Scorched Earth campaign were hugely successful in weakening the influence and outreach of guerrillas. 
However, at the same time, the state's violence finally became too much for another powerful organization. And before long, the guerrillas gained a wildly improbable ally, the Catholic Church. For years, the Catholic Church had been among the most conservative institutions in Latin America. Between 1938 and 1983, the two leading Guatemalan archbishops were uncompromising anti-communist right-wingers. Even after being kidnapped by one of the government-sponsored rightist death squads, one archbishop still declared his undying support for a strictly conservative agenda. But in the early 1960s, a new wave of gentler, compassionate Catholicism began to take root. In the wake of the Second Vatican Council, the Church took a startlingly different approach in Latin America and the Catholic world at large, one focused on upholding human rights and community outreach. By the early 1970s, a loose coalition of Catholic organizations in Guatemala advocated for seizing land for the poor, using violence if necessary, and creating a more equal and balanced Guatemalan society. Essentially, it meant that some members of the Catholic Church were willing to take up arms against the government. This did not go unnoticed by the Guatemalan guerrillas. Most guerrillas and revolutionaries believed that the Catholic organizations would be of great service to their cause. For one thing, the Catholic organizations were far better organized than the guerrillas. Furthermore, they were vastly more effective at recruiting. In some cases, the Catholic groups convinced the guerrillas to join up with them. By the early 1980s, the two groups had become inextricably linked. However, not all Guatemalan Catholics or Catholic organizations were willing to take up arms. Many felt it was not only heretical and directly in opposition to the teachings of Christ, but suicidal. In regard to the latter, they were entirely correct. Between 1978 and 1983, 34 of the leading Catholics in Guatemala were murdered, including priests, delegates, seminarians, and educators. This figure does not account for the hundreds or thousands of lower-level missionaries and Catholic activists who were killed during that time. For members of the Guatemalan military, even if these Catholics weren't proven allies of the guerrillas, they were helping the poor and the Maya, and thus, they were enemies of Mont. The violence reached a point where the Guatemalan clergy felt they had to go public with the situation. In May of 1982, a group of Guatemalan bishops published a proclamation denouncing the bloodshed. They wrote, The Church cannot remain indifferent before the suffering of its people. Never in our national history have we arrived at such a grave extreme. These assassinations now belong in the category of genocide. Perhaps because of this plea, Pope John Paul II made his first papal visit to Central America in March of 1983. In a sermon delivered to a largely indigenous crowd, the Pope decried the Guatemalan government's attempts to strip the Maya of their heritage and culture and threw in an injunction against the evangelical organizations that supported the government, too. 
During a large outdoor mass in Guatemala City, he also directly addressed the human rights abuses taking place in Guatemala, saying, The faith teaches us that man is in the image and likeness of God, and when violence is committed against him, when his rights are violated, when he is submitted to torture, a crime of the gravest offense has been committed. Though the Pope never mentioned Mont or any other Guatemalan leader by name, this was a startling indictment from the most powerful man in the Catholic Church, and Mont, it appears, took the message personally. When the Pope later requested that six political prisoners have their sentences be commuted, Mont refused. Instead, he had them put to death. This confrontation between Mont and His Holiness should have gotten other world leaders to take notice. However, the message seemingly fell on deaf ears, especially the United States. Where President Ronald Reagan, possibly the only man more powerful than the Pope, made the dangerous decision to legitimize Efrain Rios Mont. Coming up, Mont finds friends in the United States while members of Mont's regime decide they've had enough of religious fanaticism. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. Now back to the story. The atrocities committed by Efrain Rios Mont throughout 1982 and 1983 claimed the lives of more than 10,000 indigenous Guatemalans and displaced over 100,000 more. In 1983, these atrocities were condemned, in so many words, by the Pope. But if the Pope thought that his speech would inspire world leaders to intervene, he was sorely mistaken. And one of the most powerful men in the world not only chose to ignore Mont's crimes, but practically gave Mont a seal of approval. Ronald Reagan remained largely quiet about the heinous massacres in Guatemala. Instead, he was more focused on two other Central American countries, El Salvador and Nicaragua. For Reagan, Guatemala was small potatoes compared to the countries where communism seemed to have a real opportunity to gain a foothold. To that end, Reagan subscribed to what became known as the Kirkpatrick Doctrine. The doctrine was published in 1979 by Dr. Jean Kirkpatrick, who would later be named ambassador to the UN by Reagan. Kirkpatrick suggested that authoritarian regimes were preferable to Marxist ones, which were instead totalitarian. In Kirkpatrick's eyes, there was a difference between a Soviet-style totalitarian and pro-Western-style authoritarian government. Kirkpatrick claimed that an authoritarian regime could be persuaded to allow free and fair democratic elections. Despite its highly flawed premise, Reagan viewed the Kirkpatrick doctrine as gospel. Plus, for the U.S., Guatemala had sadly been a sort of success story. 
After all, the U.S. government had overthrown a left-wing leader and prevented the spread of communism in Guatemala back in the 1950s. The fact that a horrifyingly violent civil war had followed was simply a casualty of that so-called triumph. Furthermore, by the time Mont assumed office, his brutal tactics were working so well that he really didn't need any American assistance, which made it especially easy for Reagan and his cabinet to ignore the atrocities being committed in Mont's name. However, many Democrats in Congress refused to turn a blind eye. They demanded that Reagan confront Mont, or at the very least, reprimand him. Instead, Reagan doubled down. The White House viewed Mont as more pragmatic than his predecessors, a leader with whom the U.S. shared several common goals. An intelligence report from the period described Mont as intelligent but not brilliant, an eloquent speaker, frank, charismatic, and honest. Another report lauded him as demagogic and at times somewhat eccentric. However, he is viewed as an interim caretaker who possesses the qualities necessary to change the image of the country while simultaneously constructing a solid government foundation to pass on to a civilian successor. In fact, Reagan eventually used a page right out of Mont's own playbook. He blamed the previous regime and the guerrillas for Guatemala's violence, therefore lauding Mont for his dedication to law and order. Worse yet, when Reagan visited Mont in December 1982, roughly four months before the Pope's condemnation, Reagan was completely charmed by the Guatemalan leader. Later, he claimed that Mont was, quote, a man of great personal integrity and commitment. Furthermore, according to Reagan, the charges of repression and genocide were nothing but a bum rap. Why Reagan appeared so devoted to legitimizing Mont is something of a mystery. There was no question that keeping Guatemala out of communist hands was in America's interests. But it's odd that Reagan seemingly went out of his way to present Mont as more than a Cold War ally. More than likely, it was because Mont was an evangelical Christian who made it clear that everything he did was under that banner. It's quite likely that Reagan, who became the first president to turn the evangelical right into a legitimate voting bloc, saw a kind of brother-in-arms in Mont. His support extended into the American evangelical community as a whole. In fact, many American evangelicals viewed Mont as a divine leader and genuinely bought into his rhetoric regarding piety and family values. This was just the sort of ideology they hoped would be adopted by a president in the United States. Their faith was helped along by the two most prominent evangelical leaders at this time, Pat Robertson and Jerry Falwell. Robertson and Falwell were both staunchly anti-communist. The two men used their respective pulpits, TV shows, and books to rail against the godless red menace and all that it represented. And more importantly, the pair actually presented Ephraim Rios Mont as a good Christian soldier doing the Lord's work to bring peace and stability to a war-ravaged country. Never mind, of course, the slaughter of innocent indigenous Maya. 
New organizations and journalists fought to present a more accurate portrait of Mont to Americans. But amongst evangelicals, at least, Robertson and Falwell carried far more weight. The results of their misinformation were devastating. In the United States, thousands of refugees and exiles seeking to better their lives faced discrimination and condemnation. Families who were driven from their homes and who saw their family members murdered were now chastised in a foreign land. Instead of being welcomed with open arms, these refugees were seen by some as potential communists. They were painted as dissidents against a benevolent Christian leader and as freeloaders who sought to exploit the United States' generosity. To those against the immigrants, everything was perfectly fine in Guatemala. These people were just being ungrateful rabble-rousers. Of course, everything was not fine in Guatemala. Although Efrain Rios Montt enjoyed continued support from the United States, back home his popularity was quickly beginning to wane. Despite his success against the guerrillas, many Guatemalan military and business leaders were embarrassed by Montt's evangelical proselytizing. Furthermore, he had alienated many of his fellow military commanders by promoting men they felt did not deserve such elevated rank. But most importantly, Mont had legitimately cut down on the out-of-control graft and kickbacks that were hallmarks of the Guatemalan military elite. So, in this case, it wasn't the genocide that got Mont booted out of office. It was because he simply wasn't corrupt enough. On August 8, 1983, Efrain Rios Mont was deposed in, you guessed it, a coup. We know very few details about the coup itself, except that it was orchestrated by Mont's own Minister of Defense and that seven men were killed during the proceedings. Mont managed to survive. Though Mont is perhaps the most infamous of Guatemala's dictators, he had one of the shortest reigns, a mere 17 months. Despite being deposed, Mont wasn't through with Guatemalan politics. In the late 1980s, he actually founded a new political party known as the Guatemalan Republican Front. For many Guatemalans, Mont was still a hero, one who had brought a degree of law and order to the country after years of abject violence. He even served in Guatemala's Congress intermittently between 1994 and 2012. In 1996, no thanks to him, the country finally saw the government sign peace accords with the guerrillas. In 1996, after 36 years of brutal civil war in which over 200,000 people lost their lives, the fighting had finally ceased. Meanwhile, in 2003, Mont decided it was time to get back into the spotlight and run for president. The bid did not go as planned. In the first round of voting, Mont ended up in third place. Meanwhile, Mont's opponents were trying to find ways to formally indict him for crimes against humanity, specifically for the killing of 1,771 Ixil Maya men, women, and children. But justice hadn't been served yet. Though Mont's presidential bid was sunk and he lost his then-congressional seat, 
he actually managed to win a different congressional seat in 2007. By becoming a congressman again, Mont was immune from prosecution. Eventually, when his term expired in 2012, he was finally forced to face the charges brought against him. Mont was convicted of genocide, but that verdict was thrown out and the case was retried three years later. By that point, it was decided that even if he were found guilty, because of his advanced age and debilitating health conditions, Mont would not see the inside of a jail cell. Which ultimately proved to be an accurate prediction. On April 1st, 2018, at 91 years old, Efrain Rios Mont died of a heart attack. In the end, once and for all, he escaped justice. Anthropologist David Stoll perfectly captured the Guatemalan dictator's complicated legacy. Stoll wrote, Consider the thousands of unarmed men, women, and children killed by the army while he sermonized about morality, and he is a monster. Consider the hopes invested in him by many Guatemalans, including poverty-stricken Catholic peasants, and he becomes a hero of mythic proportions. To some, Mont was a divine soldier of Christ. To others, he was a paragon of law and order and an ally in the fight against communism. But he was also, objectively, a tyrant who sanctioned the slaughter of indigenous Maya. During Mont's brief 17-month reign, well over 10,000 people were killed. Meanwhile, an estimated 440 villages were destroyed, resulting in the displacement of tens of thousands of people, mostly the ethnic Maya. Putting that reign in context, who knows if Mont or the Guatemalan leaders who preceded him would have ever come to power if not for the meddling of the U.S. government. Had the CIA not orchestrated the 1954 coup, perhaps there never would have been a Guatemalan civil war. And although that particular civil war may be a thing of the past, corruption and crime in Guatemala are almost as rampant as they were in the years preceding Efrain Rios Mont. Meanwhile, Guatemalans seeking a better life in the United States face a difficult path too. They are often met with scorn, derision, and violence, often by men and women whose ideologies have been corrupted by ultra-conservative zealots. Ultra-conservative zealots, just like Efrain Rios Mont. Thanks for listening to Dictators. Next week, we begin our study on Nicaraguan dictator Anastasio Somoza de Baile. Among the many sources we used for today's episode, we found Terror in the Land of the Holy Spirit by Virginia Garrard Burnett extremely helpful. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other Spotify originals from Parcast free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Dictators is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max and Ron Cutler. Sound designed by Michael Motion, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Dictators was written by Tony Goodman, with writing assistance by Joe Guerra and Nora Battelle, fact-checking by Adriana Romero, and research by Bradley Klein. Dictators stars Kate Leonard and Richard Rossner.
I'm Sarah Turney, host of the new Spotify original from Parcast, Disappearances. Every Thursday, join me for an exploration into history's most gripping missing persons cases. Following timelines, analyzing clues, and piecing together as many answers as possible to find the truth. From prison breaks and child abductions to second chances and even murder. We'll journey through the many reasons people disappear. Follow my new podcast, Disappearances, free and only on Spotify.